Hello and welcome to Frank Fryer Fridays. This is Father Patrick Baikowskis, today broadcasting from Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, Missouri. And I have a prayer to begin today, a prayer to for all of us, all, because all of us are called to be bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ. So let us pray. Gracious Father, your Son, before he ascended to glory, declared that your people would receive power from the Holy Spirit to bear witness to him to the ends of the earth. Be present with all who go forth in his name. Let your love shine through their witness so that the blind may see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead be raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And I have a special guest today, Brother Bernard Weirdak, who is a student brother in his second year studies. And I live with him at St. Dominic Priory in St. Louis, Missouri. And it's great to be able to welcome a fellow Illinoisan to Frank, <laughs> to Frank Fire Fridays. Um, Bernard went to Oak Park River Forest High School. So, you know, Oak Park, for those of you who don't know, should. That's very much <laughs> Dominican land. We have a lot of Dominican institutions there. And uh, but he didn't go to our schools there. Uh, he went to T Tulane University and studied chemical engineering and then went right from Tulane to become a focus missionary, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And so we're going to talk about that experience and his experience with evangelization and his experience coming to the Dominican order. So welcome, Bernard, to Frank Fire Fridays. Thank you, Father Patrick. I'm really happy to be here. Well, great to have you here. So t tell us a little bit about, well, what, you know, there's a lot of actually the, the people that are our listeners are, are people that have some experience with campus ministry because some of our listeners are members still of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic Center at Purdue University. Right. How did it get? How did it, this all get started? I presume it got started at Tulane, while you're supposed to be studying chemical engineering. <laughs> That's right. Yes, in my uh, time away from my diligent chemical engineering studies, I spent time at the Newman Center, the Tulane Catholic Center on campus at Tulane. I spent an increasing amount of time there throughout my years, but. Within probably the first week or two weeks that I was on campus, I had met focused missionaries. And at the time, uh, I was meeting 23 to 25 year old people who were introducing themselves to me as missionaries. And I was probably confused. I didn't mm -hmm. have a lot of uh, deeper awareness of kind of the life of the church ministries and things like that. You thought missionaries were all in China and... Right, right. Olivia. I kind of imagined uh, very brave priests wearing unfamiliar robes, going to foreign lands, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And these were people who I might have encountered on the street anywhere telling me they were missionaries. So I thought, oh, okay. But over time, what I came to find was that these were people full of uh, deep joy and conviction. And they 
became some of my great friends, especially mm -hmm. by the time I was a junior and senior at Tulane. I had a lot of respect for uh, the life and the sense of purpose and the, the commitment mm -hmm. to Jesus that these people had. Mm -hmm. What Have you ever thought about like what was the tipping point? Do you, you know what I mean? So when you were, you went there to be a chemical engineer, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and so then something happened. I've thought about the tipping point. There is a tipping point I could I could uh, share the story of, and I will. But I would add before I talk about that story is that there was a steady work of God in my heart, uh, in my mind, throughout my years at Tulane. I went there with some kind of openness. It's hard to describe, but I, I tried to go into college with an openness to new experiences. And what that meant was, in my case, an openness to Catholic activities. Uh, because when I went to one student mass, I started to be invited to more. And because I told myself and had this idea it'd be good to be open in college, I started to go to stuff that people were inviting me to. And this is one of the things that we'll probably talk about, but invitation is, is an important aspect mm -hmm. of evangelization. So throughout my time at Tulane, I took a step forward, tried to do things like uh, pay attention to God, pray, spend time in community. I joined a Bible study, these kinds of things. But I had some difficulties and hesitations too. I was especially challenged because in my engineering classes, I met many agnostic and atheist people, and they had what I thought were some good objections uh, grounded in their own worldview from sort of a scientific or empirical outlook. And I wanted to know if they were correct, that someone couldn't be both a serious scientist and a man of faith. And this mm -hmm. was a real struggle for me. That unfolded over time, and I had some good answers given to me by the Dominican friar, who was the chaplain of our Newman Center at Tulane. But along with kind of a a series of good preachings that he gave and some solid teaching and conversations about philosophy. I also was having a series of experiences in prayer. And those were the things that were really drawing me because it was God alive in my heart, showing me with this deep conviction, the authenticity of his love for me that invited me to live for more. And the, the moment the sort of watershed for this was when I attended Focus's Fellowship of Catholic University Students, their conference called SEEK, and this was in San Antonio, Texas in 2017. And that conference had all kinds of wonderful aspects to it. I was particularly struck by some of the talks and presentations. There was a talk about the mass that really shifted my outlook for when I go to worship. Uh, there was the experience of the Mass itself at this conference with about 15,000 young people who were very joyfully and faithfully offering their worship to God. And then the, the moment where I had one of these intimate moments with God where He spoke in my soul was during a, a time of adoration and confession. And again, the whole conference, about 15,000 people, young people are all gathered to worship and pray together to praise God. And 
this was in Eucharistic Adoration, and what I was actually struck by was the sight of people in line for the Sacrament of Reconciliation. At this time, I was hesitant about it, not confident in God's mercy extended to me, and I was reluctant to go. But what I saw was, as soon as they made it available and announced that people could begin going to see the priests for the sacrament, uh, probably six or seven hundred people were literally running, I mean sprinting, to go receive reconciliation, to be united again to Jesus through this important sacrament. And the line looked like Six Flags had opened up a new <laughs> roller coaster. But it was it wasn't anything that exciting to the eyes. It was it was just this sacrament that I you know I had been introduced to in in my religious preparation and formation. You know, but they're like almost elbowing each other, lining up in this massive number to go. And what I saw was a trust and a confidence in God through these young people's faith. Uh, and then it was it was further hit home. It locked in really in my heart when I saw them also reverence the Eucharist. So when they began to do a procession with the Eucharist, all of these hordes of young people lined up for confession. They also were careful to keep their eyes on where Jesus was in the Eucharist in the room. And they followed him as, as he was processed by the priests. And then eventually they, they thought it would be good to show some reverence by kneeling down, just in recognition that God was present there in the room with us. And it was the sight of this wave of people kneeling that unlocked something in my mm -hmm. soul that really connected. Uh, and that showed me, again, God is alive. Jesus is real. He loves me and that he's inviting me to more. Yeah. You know, is I guess in a way this is maybe it may sound like a rhetorical question, but I'm thinking a lot about this topic of joyfulness at mass. I'm I'm one of the Eucharistic revival preachers and I'm preaching to right. the priests of the diocese of Davenport in a week and a half. And I'm I'm really angsting over what I what I'm what I'm going to say. Not angsting in a good way because I think that there's things that <laughs> yeah. that I can share with them that are important. And one of them is how important it is that we have joyful celebrations of liturgy. I've been to seek. I've only been to two conferences. I was at Baltimore when there was only six thousand people there. Oh wow! Only six. And I. <laughs> Blown away. Well, yeah, that's still a lot of yeah. a lot of yeah. faithful Catholic people yeah. having joy in, in their faith. Right, and then I was in Indianapolis, uh, probably the last one that was pre-COVID, uh, and there's this joyful experience of Holy Mass. Why yes. why can't we why can't we do that every time we have Mass? Well, I think we could. Um, there are probably a few different reasons that Mass is lacking in joy. Uh, very often I think it could be a basic um, lack of, of understanding or lack of engagement with the Mass, and that leads to something more like disinterest, or you could say apathy. People are, you know, maybe looking on their phones, they're looking at anything around in, in the church building, uh, rather than engaging that celebration and worship of God that's happening before them. Um, but then in some some cases, I think we're also, we're seeking to be reverent, and we, we think 
that means sort of um, kind of complete silence or a, a, a perfect conformity maybe to um, our, our ritual. And then we, we may become so attentive to those things that we lose a little bit of mm -hmm. sight of the joy that we're called to, even mm -hmm. in our worship. Um, and then, yeah, joy could also be missing just happenstance. Sometimes people who are coming are troubled. Their community is afflicted with something. There's a difficulty. Mm -hmm. sure. And that's not a, a bad reason no. for the joy to be lacking. But sometimes that is the explanation. Sure, sure. You, you mentioned something that I want to go back to, and that's that, that importance of invitation. We, at our priory, just last week, we had guests on Thursday night. And I was sitting next to Lynn Duffield. Some of the listeners know Lynn. Maybe Lynn's even listening in. And she was talking to me about uh, about ministry at St. Tom's at Purdue University. And I yeah. was telling her about the things that we experienced. And she says, well, why? Why did that happen? What, what was going on? And I said, personal invitation. And I don't yeah. think that's what she expected was the answer. But talk, talk about that in your own experience and the, the, the whether or not you know. Oh, yeah. I know you think it's important. I do. I think it's essential. Uh, maybe one of the main ideas uh, about evangelization today or how we could effectively share the joy of the gospel in our world, it would involve personal invitation. There's a lot to that. Personal invitation means something like going to someone you know or someone you love that you're close to and asking them to join you in something. Come to my house. Can we go play this game together? Could we go watch a movie? But also, could we go do something together that's oriented to God? That includes uh, enlivening our spirit. That includes worship. And it's much more generous and it seems much more loving and more true when we get a personal invite especially in a time when we use and this it's not bad but we use mass communication media email various forms of social media these are all used to uh, connect people and make them aware of activities and events but it it's something much more significant when a person that you know and has some sort of place in your life comes to you and asks to share in an experience together. Mm -hmm. Who invited you to go to whatever? I mean, oh yeah, you know that... yeah. I was invited to go to uh, the first retreat that I attended by a personal invitation from my my friend Ben. Uh, my friend Callan gave me an invitation to go to this. Seek conference that was that was transformative that changed my life. A focused missionary James gave me a, a personal invitation to join a Bible study. So these are all first time things in yeah. my life, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have sort of drifted into them, and I probably wouldn't have responded to something like a mass announcement or a bulletin insert, or even an email, because mm -hmm. all of those. They're, yeah, they're not coming in that living, embodied form. And when it was from yeah. these trusted friends, 
I mean, I'm, on one level, it was harder to say no. I did have this openness, as I described, but part of me probably said yes because they were important to me, and I just wanted to give them a chance and, again, have an opportunity to experience something together with people. Mm-hmm. I was driven by, and many of us are driven by, this fundamental desire to be in relationship and to experience deeper communion with, with all the people in our lives. Mm-hmm. What do you think drives the the reluctance to make the invitation. I, I, I think that once the, the invitation is made, it, it, it's more often accepted than people might realize. But what's, what's yeah. the resistance to making the invitation? I think there's a fear or an uncertainty about being told no. Mm-hmm. Because we make ourselves vulnerable when we issue invitations. It's something a little bit different than, again, like a mass invite or even something like, you know, sending out cards or something. But when you go up to a person and ask that, will you join me in this? Will you be with me? I would like to do this with you. You're sharing a part of your authentic self. And there's actually not quite a guarantee that the person you invite says yes. Mm -hmm. And so there's a there's a slight risk always. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's a greater risk depending on you know how important the invitation is or how uncertain we might feel. And so our uncertainty or our fear about the vulnerability about being no, and really you face a you face the potential of rejection. That's the thing that holds us back very often. Yeah. So, with the few minutes that we have remaining. You you were a missionary for two years. That's correct. And that was in now now it's escaping. You were in Texas, right? Yeah, in Waco, Texas, at Baylor. At Baylor. And then something else happened. There was maybe another tipping point because you decided that this experience in ministry to the church wasn't going to end with focus. It was going to continue. What happened? What was the next thing that happened? Yeah, I, I had a wonderful time serving as a focused missionary. It gave me a taste of life as a full-time minister, if you will. It's not as complete of a commitment of oneself as something like priesthood or consecrated life is. So there's a deeper intensity to the way that you and I live in our community compared to how I was in my community as a focused missionary. But it gave me a lot of confidence that I'd be happy uh, and renewed and that people's lives would be shaped for the better if I said yes to God and followed Him in this way. And I was changed also by the prayer time I spent. One wonderful part of the commitment to serve as a focused missionary is that you will say a daily rosary, you will go to Mass every day, uh, you know, barring some sort of unforeseen serious difficulty or obstacle, and that you'll pray for one hour. So there's a practice of praying a holy hour. Some people have probably heard of this for focused missionaries. And I feel confident that the time I spent in prayer was really what shaped my spiritual path and what opened up my awareness of, of a vocation and it just came through because I was more and more confident that God loves me I mean it's maybe 
too simplistic to say it that way, but I think it's the best description. That kind of confidence and the experience of his love set me free to dive in deeper and to give myself even more over to his purposes and what he wants for my life and for all the people that he's going to bring into it. If you had the, an opportunity to, to speak to someone, what we call the nuns or the disengaged, what, what one thing might you want to say to someone that is feeling separated from, from the church? I would begin by acknowledging that I understand. I'm in this generation that's experiencing a, a larger share of none or sort of people describing themselves as spiritual but not religious. And so I would express understanding. I had my own difficulties, uh, dissatisfaction with what I thought the Catholic Church was, what it stood for, even what maybe happened in the content of the religious formation of our generation. And so I would, I would express an empathy and an acknowledgement that they probably have some very valid concerns and critiques. But I would also begin by asking that person some of the things like what they are motivated by, what drives them, mm -hmm. what do they love in their life. Because I would be confident that as long as they're willing to share something of substance and true about them, that you're going to have great common ground already. You'll be able to express the truth to them that you're a human person too, just like them, that we have things in common even though our spiritual outlooks are different and, and might mean that we view many things in our world differently. Well, I wish we could talk for a couple more hours, but you yeah, can always too. come back, Bernard. Thank you very much. You know, I'm really proud to call you brother and I'm um, blessed to, to live with men like you and see where our church is going. I, I am filled with hope. I, we, we just had an experience for the listeners. We had 30 men come to see, our, see. To our come and see this past week and 30 men that were, are, you know, at various levels of discerning whether or not God is calling them to something more with their life. And to, to be present and to be part of that in even a very small way, it's a, it's a, it fills me with joy and, and hope. So thank you very much for being with us. Me too. Thank you, Father Patrick.